Welcome to BNV Radio. We're coming to you from Board and Vellum, a design firm here in Seattle, Washington. It's an exciting time to be in Seattle, whether you grew up here or you're new to the area. And we're going to talk a little bit about design, but more than that, we're going to talk about what it's like to experience Seattle through the eyes of a designer. I'm Charles. I'm an architect here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for 18 months. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer. I live in Old Ballard and I've been a Seattleite since I was two years old. This week's show is titled Seattle Parks and the Paywall. While Seattle has some unique urban parks, the city isn't necessarily known for them as much as it is for the state parks surrounding it. With the city so rich in natural beauty, what makes its urban parks special and vital to Seattle? Additionally, as the Seattle urban park evolves, is there an invisible paywall developing between the public and its parks? Here to talk about some of the possibilities is a special guest, Leslie Batten. She's a landscape architect here in Borden Vellum. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So first question, it's always the same. How long have you been in Seattle and what neighborhood do you live in? I've been in Seattle since I was nine. So I can't do the math, but that's quite a long time. Um, most of my life. So I pretty much have to say I'm from here. And which neighborhood? I'm in the Ballard neighborhood. Oh, cool. Are you in old Ballard or other Ballard? Uh, I'm up by the high school. So it's definitely not the old. So what neighborhood is that technically, Rachel Ballard expert? <laughs> I don't know if I get to, I don't know if I get to claim that. Yeah, sen- senior director of senior Ballard living here at Bordenville. Uh, but you didn't grow up in Seattle. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Montana. Well, I have to say that being here since nine. Is that so? Is that enough to be from Seattle? Well, you're still aren't you still in elementary school when you're nine? I mean, yeah. I feel like fourth grade. You've lived in good. Seattle longer than you've lived anywhere yes. else. Yes. One of these days, we're gonna have callers. And we'll have people call in and decide. Yeah. Everybody call in. (laughs) Is Leslie is Leslie a local? (laughs) Five five five. Or an outsider. Um, But so I mean, so maybe that actually informs my next question. It might be completely useless. How did your time in Montana as a kid specifically form your sense of what a park is, or did it at all? Well, you know, it's funny you asked this question, and I had to think about it earlier today. I was, and I have four brothers, and we were basically feral children. And we lived in a newer development for that time, and the whole backyard and back lots were all undeveloped. So basically, it was sagebrush for miles. As a kid, it felt like for miles. And we're right at the base of the Rimrock Mountains, so that basically was our open space. And then we'd walk to school on our own, and there would be some gullies that were just like, unbuildable ravines and that was kind of my open space and if I really think about it I don't remember actually going to a park there maybe was one where like when we were playing t-ball or soccer that we went and played our games at but other than that it wasn't like we went to a park to recreate we were hanging out in the gully we were hanging out in the rim rocks hanging out in the sagebrush being wild feral kids <laughs> but were there urban were there urban park spaces of any kind was it like an urban square that was a piazza or not piazza fancy word in montana right you know right. the montana piazza is what montana's famous for yes. um no no but you know what i mean like uh was there a paved area that was the park oh because yeah were so I mean, surrounded by there were the roads the streets well, the there roads, was the yeah. the blacktop at the local school um, it was, I lived in Billings, so it was basically a little suburban town, definitely didn't have an urban center. It was definitely the sprawl. Um, so our, like where we rode our bikes was basically the blacktop or the roadways of our local school and 
and our streets. This is totally throwing you off because no, you no. totally want like an urban description. No, no, no. no that's, that's, no, it's a really good point. It actually brought to mind thinking about roads as probably cul-de-sacs are a community public space mm -hmm. many streets the sort of like game on game off thing we're playing yeah. hockey in the street like yeah. that's a whole portion of community and landscape design rarely right. ever talked about that we don't think about because yeah. it's definitely an infrastructure piece it's where cars go mm -hmm. but we had a cul-de-sac kind of in our neighborhood so that was definitely like when we went sledding that's where we kind of started off as up at the top of that roadway that's what we did too we lived at the top of a cul-de-sac I mean, we didn't have sledding. Like, yeah. I'm sure that you guys <laughs> had sledding. Yeah. It was like once every several years. Yeah. There might be some. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so when you moved to Seattle when you're nine, that's still like prime park yes. attendance age. So yes. where, what parks did you go to when you showed up? So when we moved to Seattle, we actually moved to Mercer Island. And we lived in this house that was on the south end of the island. And it was convenient for us right across from a park and it wasn't named it was just a lawn and then it had a little pond and some woods and a trail that went all the way across to the other side which is where we caught the school bus is it still not named as far as i know it's not named and it may be on a map but it never had a sign like you're at this park like most parks have that rainbow the seattle yeah, rain, well, rainbow seattle, sign yeah and then mercer island has their own style i'm sure you know, it's so, so interesting. I see so many of those signs. I never lived in a city that had so many. They're all small and unique and of the neighborhood and so many official parks. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. Within Seattle. Right. Yeah. Within urban, like the urban center, central right. Seattle. Right. All the little pocket parks that they've been able to actually announce and declare this is public space. This is your space. Right. Don't feel like it's a vacant lot that you can't spent some time mapping trails on Mercer Island after uh, undergrad and there were a lot of street ends that weren't marked you'd ha kind of have to be in the know or be in the neighborhood to know that that was a park that you could go hang out on it wasn't somebody else's you know private property so it is convenient in Seattle that it's a little bit more clear so it's do the waterfront rules apply on Mercer Island still that, that if it has the beachfront property that you can have public access to it or mm -hmm. well as far as the public property goes yeah if there's beachfront yeah. you have access yeah. Do you have a favorite pocket park? I mean, it doesn't have to be a pocket park. It could be a giant park, any park. Oh, God. Just in Seattle. Yeah, the one that's immediately coming to mind is Couch Park in Pollard. Have you been to that one? Yeah. It's kind of odd. I've never been. Where so is it? It has a couch in it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Like, I actually pictured like a, a living field room. Of, of abandoned couches. <laughs> I know it's not that. Although in Seattle, you you know, I, if I came across that, I'd be like, totally yeah, couch park. It's a couch farm. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, this is where couches come from. Didn't you know? Didn't your parents tell you when you reached a certain age where couches came from? Yeah, it's an odd little park that I'm sure has a story about why it has a couch in it. Like maybe it was a house before. And so they're kind of reclaiming that history and saying that this is your pocket neighborhood park. It's your living room. You can hang out in it and enjoy yourself as much as possible. But in addition to having that little li mini living room, it has large um, lawn space and then it has a nice little swale. So you kind of get this combination of you're treating stormwater, you're treating your infrastructure, you're providing lawn and you're providing a living room. And that's what I think makes a successful park is being able to have a lot of different elements to it that make it flexible to a variety of people. How big is it? Not very big, like maybe a house lot. 
like a parcel size. That reminds me, there's this popular notion, especially when it comes to city parks, among designers, perhaps not landscape architects, that a park needs to be big to be effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, They think of the big city parks Mm -hmm. and like, oh, well, you know, if the buildings are really far away and I'm surrounded by nature, then it's a park. But here in Seattle, some of the most successful ones are tiny. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it depends on what your goal is. I think I think you're bringing up Central Park, which you are in midst of a very urban environment. Tons of concrete everywhere you go. Street trees are most likely buried in concrete with maybe a tree grate on it. So you almost need this huge area just to feel like you're getting away and you're reconnecting to nature and to kind of refresh yourself. Um, but at the same time, you know, you look at, again, the streets or the stoops at those small levels and what exactly are you trying to serve? Is it connection to people and being able to have a conversation? Is it people, is it connection to nature and being able to just get that natural, like, uh, I think the Japanese call it forest bathing. Someone just told me about forest bathing. Yes. Yes. And you just recharge yourself. It's an actual thing that's prescribed to patients. Yes. I believe it. I need more of that in my life. That's right. As long as it isn't like, well, you you have cancer. So no, no. no. <laughs> you know, as long as long as it's like you're stressed out and you have yes. anxiety, yeah. I'd be concerned. Yeah. If like you have a cavity, yeah. six so weeks of forest bathing, yes. and you'll yeah. clear it right up. Yeah. I might be slightly more skeptical. <laughs> but yeah, having but just been back from a hike, I did, that was when I uh, my friend who went with me told me about it, and I believed it no problem. Yeah, just the lack of sound the air itself oh man i think the part is breathing i think that's a huge element of it the fresh air and just yeah. especially how vertical now we're talking about hikes really randomly <laughs> the, the vertical hikes especially you have to focus on the landscape 100 mm-hmm. of the time or you bite it mm-hmm. and just that just that action alone mm-hmm. is so incredibly helpful and useful yeah. but i wonder if urban parks probably don't have that as much we direct everybody's traffic in urban parks Mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. You find that that's a challenge in landscape design, telling people where to to go and how? Yes, today I was following, not like intentionally following, a gentleman in front of me because we were going in the same direction. And we both stepped off the path at about the same time because it was a desire line to head towards the corner as opposed to continue the path and then make a sharp left. And so I'm sure in plan view, designing that little trail made sense, but then knowing what people actually do, that is always the hard part because until it's built, sometimes you can't anticipate, but that's what we're always trying to do is step back and be like, okay, well, what's going to be the desire path? Where are people really going to want to do go? If there's a new development that comes here, are they going to want to cut off early and head over? And if it does happen, maybe the impact isn't huge. And maybe it's allowable that that new path can be created without, you know, destroying the park itself. Mm-hmm. So you can accommodate and be a little bit more flexible. That's interesting to think about because so in my childhood here in Seattle, there were two parks that had the biggest impact on me. And it was based on where our family house was mm-hmm. at the time. And it, it's a little uneven because when I was in third grade, we moved to the house that my parents still live in now. And that is right by Carkeek Park, which is very like there. There is, there are manicured and very carefully um, designated pathways and things. And there's nature trails and wilderness center. There's a wilderness center there to learn about the environment and all these things. But there's so much of that park. It's huge. There's so much of it that is just a wildscape, mm-hmm. right? 
but but so most of my childhood is associated with that park. But before that, we lived somewhere when I was third grade and younger near Matthews Beach, but it was far enough away from the beach that uh, in order to, you would walk there, but it would take a while and it would be on roads and sidewalks and things. Well, not a lot of sidewalks. Seattle isn't like super great about having sidewalks, but, <laughs> but so her babysitter found this way. I don't know if she had known it ahead of time or if it was, this was just us kids like wandering around. Um, we figured out a way that we could get to there by cutting through green spaces that were on trails that were like people had made these trails. It wasn't like we were bushwhacking through the green spaces of Northeast Seattle. I mean, it was, these were no <laughs> trails. It's a great image. But it, as a little kid, it seemed like such a, like, like you, you were doing something really yeah. special because these trails don't seem like they're really offic- official. Mm-hmm. And yet you're like, maybe like five feet off of the road or something, but you're finding this path that is way cooler as a little kid to get to the beach than walking on the road. Right. And it's an adventure in that yeah. case. Yeah. Right. And so in Karki Park, there's a lot of trails like that, but there's also these, in, as a way of protecting the environment, they actually prefer, of course, that you stay on the designated trail. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean there's not a ton of other little ad hoc trails everywhere, but you have that... I don't know you it part of me when I go down there now makes me miss that feeling of getting to be on the unsanctioned trail of yeah and does part of that come with the crowds that you suddenly feel like you're the typical paths are full and it's hard to like get through without or be at peace because there's so many people or that there will be social judgment if you break the rules And you go off trail. Yeah. Social judgment in Seattle. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I thought it was interesting earlier though that you brought up Central Park uh, because I feel like one of the things I noticed when I moved here is how different the relationship was of the city to the park in all caps, the park. In New York City, it's like the second feature people think of in Manhattan. It's like Empire State Building, Central Park. Huge, looms large in the the image of the city. Uh, I lived in DC where a huge part of the district uh, is all a national park uh, that you live in. And here we don't really have a central, city a trophy, park. a trophy park, mm-hmm. a park that is the uh, the focus of the city. We have a few that are larger. We have Golden Gardens, we have Volunteer Park, um, but none that come to mind because we're surrounded by the state parks that are so much more iconic. Do you think, especially with the density increasing here, density is kind of what makes Central Central Park special. And so as density increases in Seattle, do you think that one of our parks might evolve into that or that the populace will all of a sudden crave that type of big feature park? I think that's a, a combination of factors. Like thinking about like my history class of Central Park was developed and purchased at a time when development wasn't as dense. I mean, there's certainly development on the park at the time. Um, And so the timing of that was amazing. And I think that you could argue that in Vancouver and Portland, they all have their big central feature parks as well. And Seattle, um, you know, I think that they started off, the Olmsteads came out here and they provide a plan much like they did with Central Park. And so the whole Green Lake, Ravenna, Cowan Park, and then a lot of Lake Washington Um, Park and Boulevard were part of their grand plan that Seattle would have this amazing interconnected green belt throughout the city. 
And the city was really great about implementing that from the beginning. And I think it um, was difficult to kind of maintain and make one central park as the city has grown kind of north. And it's very limited by the water boundaries. Mm-hmm. So I think the well, the way that Seattle has evolved from that as opposed to, I think, the, the barriers of the development um, capabilities of the land just being so landlocked with the waterscapes um, that smaller parks have actually started to become more of what you're describing of being the kind of classic neighborhood parks like if you talk about capitol hill you have cal anderson if you talk about downtown you've got westlake it's a different type of park it's more of a plaza but you also have the sculpture park as well and uh, myrtle edwards as well and then you have gasworks you know so you're getting into the larger parks that are more neighborhood specific and they all resonate really well you bring any of those up and people that live in seattle are like yeah those are awesome i love those parks you definitely gotta check them out and they all have different features for why they're amazing um and so i think that instead of just the one huge i don't even know how central, how big central park is but it's huge um oh, it's massive yeah massive. it's massive acres, several but... 20 bucks if not more um, wait no it's way more than that. I think it's from the starts in the 50s or 60s and goes all the way up to like 1 to 120th Street or something. It's it's, huge. it's forever. Yeah. 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 It would be really awesome to get like a scaled overlay of Central Park with our Seattle parks. Maybe that we should do that as a follow up thing. Actually. But yeah. because like when yeah. you're talking about this, what, what I'm thinking is like all the biggest parks that I can think of in Seattle that you know, I've been to and played in as a kid and, and visit even as an adult, you know, Discovery Park, Golden Gardens, mm-hmm. Carkeek Park, all these ones, they're the biggest thing about them is that they are on the water. Mm-hmm. And so they don't, it's impossible for them to have that kind of like green jewel in the middle of an urban environment feel because like that Central Park has because they're on the water. And I mean, being on the water is awesome, but they, they, they are geographically incapable in of, of serving that kind of feature of a green oasis in the middle of the city because they're on this, you know, geographic border of the water. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there was talk, I don't, I don't know my political history well enough to remember, but you know, when we were, there was all the talk of having the lid on I-5 and having that yes. big park that would have yes. been yes. Seattle's yes. version. Yeah. Like that would be what, like in order to have a park like Central Park, it has to be, I think that it has to be landlocked. It has to be city, like urban concrete landlocked park in order to act like Central Park in Seattle. You know, you brought up the fact that Central Park was developed. Mm -hmm. Like you think of it, especially when you see that dramatic overhead shot that you always see when you type into Google Images, it looks like this protected, cordoned, natural part Mm -hmm. of the island. When it was stripped to grade, all that stuff was imported Mm -hmm. from all across the country. Regraded. Yeah, yeah, regraded. It's all just the biggest fake out of all time. Mm -hmm. We have some parks, not all, like uh, Golden Gardens. Gardens is more of a protected swath. Mm -hmm. But I feel like maybe... Seattle can admit a little easier that their parks are fake. Not fake, but they are not these cordoned off jewels of nature and take advantage of that a little bit more. On the East Coast, I feel like the designers play up the supposed random nature of the elements they're using. But there are exceptions to that in Seattle. Uh, If you go to West Seattle and you go to Lincoln Park or Schmidt Park, Schmidt Park, I think, is one of the few parks that still has old growth forest in it. And so it's actually really living up to that standard of it's protecting, it is a jewel, it's protecting that natural landscape that was here before Europeans settled. 
Um, and I think you could almost argue that with Seward Park as well. I think that's been one of those forested parks that's been around for ages and has amazing trails through it and is also protected forest land. And those are definitely a little bit more remote and harder to get to, but I think they're, again, if you're in that neighborhood, that's your central park. What park do you live nearest right now? Uh, I live nearest to Kierke Park, which is a new park and it has a really great backstory too. Um, It used to be several buildings, like houses, like two or three next door to each other that were owned by a cult. And then, yes, yes. And then somehow the cult dissolved. I think maybe their leader passed away and the park acquired the property and they demoed the buildings. They left some of the foundation. And so some of that is left over and they put in a pea patch and then a really nice lawn and some skating elements, um, picnic area and uh, a kids play area. And it's awesome. It's very nice. It's a great neighborhood pocket park. Um, In a way, the Puget Sound, you could say, is our biggest urban park, but it's not necessarily free. It seems like it because we all have visual access to it. But to actually get on it, you have to buy a ferry ticket or you have to have a boat or a kayak or something to experience it firsthand. So it costs uh, different it costs different amounts of money, essentially, to get up really close. And another example of this, downtown, uh, there is a project that's uh, known, it's almost famous already, even though it's not even finished here in Seattle, the Amazon Bubbles, as we call them. Uh, if you're not from Seattle and you're listening and you don't know this project, they are these almost collection of geodesic-type domes that are going to have uh, almost a park inside of it, greenhouse spaces. And they are privately built, they're privately owned by Amazon, and they're not going to be accessible to the public, accessible only to Amazon employees. So is this the beginning of an invisible paywall between the public and its parks in Seattle? And what does that, what does that mean for park design in Seattle? That's a really big question. Um, and I think where that's happening is somewhat like the Belltown, South Lake Union redevelopment area where there's a lot of new development coming in. And part of that is the city's been very good about having privately owned public space be incorporated within that new development so that's not all completely cut off and cordoned from the public. Um, but it's always difficult to tell where exactly that border is. Like if you're walking by and you see a plaza, you it's not clear necessarily if you as a general public are invited in mm-hmm. or whether or not that's just for the people that work in that building or in that, that block. Um, I want to say that Seattle has enough activism within its veins mm-hmm. that it won't ever get to the point where all public space is privatized. Well, there's a positive consequence maybe to the new density and that tax revenue is going to go way up. And I don't know my local politics well enough to know how much of that gets earmarked for public spaces. Mm -hmm. But potentially that's a big plus. Increase of funds to maintain public spaces and increase of funds perhaps to build new, develop new public spaces. Right. And I'm not familiar enough with Seattle specific codes, but I am pretty confident that, you know, if you provide open space, that there are benefits to either your floor area ratio or other benefits for development. Um, So I I think as long as there are incentives, um, additional public space will be provided. But again, that's the question of privately owned public space. And what does that mean? They do still have the ability to kick you out if you violate whatever terms that they have. 
Um, whereas opposed to a genu- genuinely public space, technically that's for everyone, no matter what you're saying in all of your rights. If you're saying something they disagree with, they can't kick you out because freedom of speech. Whereas on a private space, yeah. completely different standards there. That's funny. This is a challenge we've seen as designers. It's a po- it's a popular. This is a good thing. the The values have shifted for developers. It's a popular thing to provide more public space. But where is that line? There's always that line. Well, it's a public space, but I want to be able to condition it. Well, it's a public space, but you know, I don't want anybody hanging out in there that makes people uncomfortable. So I want to be able to close it off. If it has hours. Is it a truly public space? I mean, there are, you know, once the sun goes down, you're not supposed to be in parks, but it's not super um, enforced, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I've, I've been on the shore of Westlake until like two in the morning. No one's cared. Um, but, you know, it brings up an interesting question. Kind of like I said, if a park has hours, if it has mm-hmm. specific rules, and if there's somebody locking a door, is it a public park? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I guess you could also add, is there a security guard? And does that invite the public in? And you could look at it, maybe that's providing a level of safety in an urban city, or maybe it's, you know, trying to rule certain people out. Mm -hmm. And so is that really public? Right. Um, I think that that's going to probably be a growing question, for especially as more development occurs. For sure. Because the maintenance of the park is the park if you don't maintain it it essentially dies Mm -hmm. and the less it's used by families i mean plain and simple less it's used by families the less attention it's going to get when it comes time to divide up the budget Mm -hmm. but then it's still not a super public park if you're saying only this particular person gets to gets to go right exactly and then where's where's the democratic spaces where you encounter your fellow community and your citizens and you engage, you have conversations or your people watching. And if it's all the same type of people, then where is that diversity that makes parks so exciting to attend? And on the other side of the coin, if we're encouraging, which I think would be a good thing, curious to hear your perspective, if we're encouraging developers to build more private green space, regardless, because it's good for the environment, it's good for, I mean, it's good for everyone, essentially, even the Amazon bubbles. I would rather that than just another box office space with uh, fluorescent lights. And, you know, I think it's wonderful. I just think it needs to be followed up with additional public exterior access to something, some sort of gesture. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be curious to look more into, you know, usually parks departments have a level of service where for a certain number of people, you have to have this number of acres or types of recreation and types of public space. Um, So I'd be curious to know how that is tracking with the numbers of people that are coming into each neighborhood and whether or not that's tracking with actual land area in Seattle. I think it's honestly, it's gonna be really hard to buy land. I know city of Seattle has been working really hard with the parks levy to purchase new um, area to turn into new parks which is always the exciting part, right? Is that you get these new parks and you get a new design and it's awesome and it opens, they have a ribbon cutting. <laughs> and then five years later and 10 years later, you know, it's like, well, what about that one park? You know, cause you're on to the next one. Right. Um, so I think we were talking about this earlier, but as much as it's exciting to get new parks, there's still this element where we have to maintain the ones that we have. And how do you do that so that people are excited and they want to invest in it and become, they almost take ownership mm-hmm. of it and are excited to invest in the resources to be able to maintain them? Do these types of conversations happen in the beginning of the process when you're when you're approached to do a park? 
Uh, yes, they do. And they come in the terms of what you can and cannot design because of the longevity and the maintenance requirements of the materials that we're selecting. Uh, CDCL has their standards for what they typically use for um, paving and for um, like park benches and things like that. And if you propose something that's going to, you know, be a undue hardship to them in their maintenance aspects, they'll strongly discourage you not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> has that ever like killed a really good idea? I uh, know. I, I mean, yes, it's killed a good idea, but that is where the creativity comes in. And then knowing what other direction you can go in sparks a new creative opportunity. So if I, I am now the city of Seattle and all of its people, and <laughs> I have just granted you eminent domain over the entire city. Literally, I now have power over all the private buildings too. Whole city's yours. Uh, what would you do as a landscape designer and the new most powerful person in, in Seattle city politics? What would, what park would you make? What space would you edit? How would you shape the city for the public? I think one of the greatest benefits that could happen to the city is turning one of the major north-south roadways, and I don't know which one, but one of them, into a boulevard. So you would have access to cars, but it'd probably be much more pedestrian and bicycle friendly. And you would have street trees, so you'd have the canopy coverage. Um, you would have stormwater detention and retention and cleaning. Mm -hmm. um, you'd have a little bit of public park space kind of along that whole way. Almost like Las Ramblas in Spain, but mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more um, public access or that is vehicle access. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd have an east-west corridor as well. And those would be um, very well connected to existing transportation hubs as well. I wonder if you would be celebrated or reviled for closing I-5 and 90 forever and just making them parks. Uh, <laughs> current transportation issues, yes. But that's a, <laughs> but that's that's a great a, idea. That's a great point, though. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's a natural connection, the connection between public transportation and the availability of public park space mm -hmm. uh, man would it help to have <laughs> to have more light rail to be able to activate those spaces it's the only way i mean i know in um manhattan they're slowly closing off portions of broadway mm -hmm. with the idea that the whole thing will eventually be a green space mm -hmm. but without the massive public transportation system that would be impossible and in fact it's failing so badly right now you could wonder whether or not they can even follow through with right, it. Right, if it will be a success. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that's that's not a link that is discussed very often. Mm -hmm. I think that there have been discussions about what, when light rail comes into these new communities, what that means and how that happens. Um, I know it's definitely paired on a lot of existing streets, but I think because that's going to be such a major new redevelopment to a lot of our existing infrastructure, that that's also the most exciting time to start rethinking about how we could transform these existing huge, like I'm thinking about 15th Avenue in Ballard and it's five lanes with a turn lane in the middle and it's just very busy, very concrete. And how nice would that be to be able to, one, like make a better pedestrian environment, you know, better environmental it, it, um, aspects of being able to, you know, remediate climate change with a good tree cover. Mm -hmm. um, and then also allow transportation to go through there. It's yeah, kind of like three. A really perfect example of one that would be really great for that because there are cool neighborhoods on either side of 15th, mm -hmm. but like I almost never cross 15th by foot mm -hmm. because no, it's just, it's to. such a barrier. 
if I'm crossing over it, I'm driving. Right. And if you could turn it into a boulevard, all of a sudden you have a bunch of cool businesses and a bunch of cool mm -hmm. residential areas on both sides that would become this greater unified neighborhood. Right. Those parks are generally so successful. The few that I've seen in the States, so successful. Mm -hmm. uh, in Philly, there's one attached to Old City that connects Old City to um, Penn's Landing. And, but I mean, they had a topographic advantage and that old city was already like 40 feet above. So all they had to do was project out above the highway and then make some steps. Uh, so it was cheap and easy. Right. Uh, but in that case, it's just so obvious that that area needs that would be right. amazing. Yeah. And I guess I, I generally tend to think of two firsts. Like you're already doing this one thing. How much harder is it going to be to add a street tree? <laughs> you know, if you're going to be completely redoing that roadway, you know what? You might want to also just add a few other amenities yeah. that can just make every day, everyone's everyday experience so much better. Plus, you have the bridge right there. And I, I love the idea of having boulevards and parks start to take over the all the very cool bridges that we have here in Seattle and the Ballard Bridge. And celebrate them perfect. a little bit more. Yeah, celebrate yeah. the bridges, celebrate the shipyards. Right. I mean, we have a cool park around the locks. Mm -hmm. um, that's federal land. I mean, we could start to do a lot of this stuff on a more local level, too. Funny how even though that's a, that's definitely a tourist destination, the locks, how hidden away yeah. that is. Yeah. So many of the parks here are hidden away. Yeah, again, it's neighborhood specific. Yeah. You got to really know your neighbors. Like even up here on Capitol Hill, now that I'm working here, I didn't even realize there was a park over on Harrison. But we go over there for our workout class. I was like, oh, this is a great space. <laughs> you know, and it's just I think it's knowing people that are in the neighborhood to kind of enlighten you about where the cool spaces are in their neighborhood. There are people on 15th that don't, don't know about that little patch of grass right in front of oh, the, the sanctuary. Yeah. And they're just like, what? And it's just two blocks from here. Yeah. It's so funny. And that's told so the geography here, right? Mm -hmm. It just you just think of whatever's in your immediate vicinity and that's mm -hmm. it. Because you just see a ridge and you're like, oh, there's something like in our cave brain that tells us we don't we shouldn't look any further. Right. Exactly. That's our viewpoint. That's all there <laughs> That's is. That's right. So outside of topping a highway in Seattle, is there a dream project you wish you could do oh. anywhere in the world? I'm not going to pretend that I have, you know, I'll pretend that I have eminent domain in Seattle, but it's on you to figure out where you, in the world you want to be, what you want to do. The High Line was very successful because it was very different and it brought people up to a different lane um, level or plane, I should say, to be able to see, see the city in a different way and to interact with people in a different way and the way that it interacted with the buildings adjacent to it but i feel like that's a cop-out because everyone would say that because it's kind of the hot park right now but it's extremely relevant and very successful incredibly successful and it took a long time to get the city to buy in on it and it was you know the local community groups that really fought for it the alaska viaduct became a park I mean, we're going to have the tunnel. That actually has come what up. If, rather than tearing it down, it was a park. Yeah, I think so that it, Highline. it would provide amazing views. I think people would argue that the infrastructure is not worth saving. Yeah. Probably the same thing happened with the Highline, too. Oh, yeah, the Highline was not in great shape. Yeah. And that cost a huge portion of money right. went to the yeah. retrofitting. Yeah, um, I think that it would be a pretty fantastic element. But then there's this part, it's like, oh, it's it's the Highline of... Seattle, Seattle, you know, One of the it's things like that's, yeah, yeah. that's so overlooked about the High Line is that before the High Line in general in the U.S., parks take money from the economy and do not return it. I would disagree with that, but continue. The High Line proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that parks can generate money mm -hmm. if 
it's strategically planned and executed. Mm -hmm. And that attitude towards the development of parks, I think it would get parks made and developed faster mm -hmm. uh, if that was used as a model. And I think that, you know, James Corner and Associates, um, or Field Operations, sorry, um, they were the ones that really helped um, bring the High Line into um, reality, and they have helped Seattle do the master plan for the waterfront. And I think there's a lot of promise with that and taking down the viaduct and reconnecting the market to the waterfront um, that's going to really change the city. And it's really exciting to see what they've planned and hopefully the vision will be carried out in such a way that what I'm imagining being that really easy connection um, will be really successful on the waterfront. It still doesn't get to like which park I would really want to design, <laughs> but um, I'm going to skirt that topic. Because <laughs> well, I want to design them all. <laughs> okay, so that's, okay, fine. All the parks. All the parks. You just want to be the, <laughs> the Lord Emperor... Of, park of parks in Seattle. Yes. Great. We're going to make that position. And as <laughs> Since I still apparently have, have the power over the entire political government here. Uh, well, uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining us and doing this with us. Really appreciate thank it. A lot you. of fun. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping here at the end. Our next night school event is coming up and it will focus on the future of nostalgia. Again, night school events are public open discussions about different philosophical topics. They're a lot of fun. Please, please come. Uh, it will be held on Wednesday, September 20th and be held here at Board and Bellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill in our brand new, uh, newly renovated uh, space here. So please stop by. And as always, stop by for any reason to chat with us anytime. We'd love to have you. Thank you again. And we will see you all in two weeks.